2: Hello, I'm Giles Witell. We're recording this episode in front of an audience in the Tortoise newsroom. Welcome to the news meeting. The result.
0: Trump, victorious in tonight's New Hampshire primary. Well, I want to thank everybody. This is a fantastic state. Ukraine says at least five people have
2: been killed in a wave of missile attacks overnight. Scientists say a simple blood test could revolutionize the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Smoke rises in the distance over Khan Yunus, where Israeli forces are now focusing their firepower.
0: The Oscars nominations are now out. Barbie Outrage, the biggest grossing film of 2023, just got snubbed big time.
2: So, what should lead the news? This is personal for me because uh, in my day job, I've already tried to decide that today and in advance for tomorrow. But anyway, for the purposes of this podcast, that's what the four of us on this stage and everyone in the newsroom here are going to try and work out. Joining me are my tortoise colleagues, Jess Winch and Stephen Armstrong. Hello. 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 And we're also very pleased to have with us the journalist and academic Jane Martinson. Jane recently reported an episode of Tortoise's Slow Newscast. It's called Mr. Wright, Paul Marshall and the Battle for the Telegraph, and she knows whereof she speaks because she's also the author of a book in similar territory, You May Never See Us Again, which it says here is about the current Telegraph owners David and Frederick Barclay, but only one of them still alive, right? Indeed, Frederick
3: Frederick, Um, David died, sadly.
2: Okay. So, you've each chosen a story you think should lead the news, and you're going to explain why. We'll discuss them, and then at the end, I'll decide which ones tortoise should cover more than we have already and in what order. So, let's start with long stories short in a single sentence or phrase or haiku or whatever (laughs) you like. (laughs) Jess, what's your story?
4: It's happening. The rematch nobody wants.
2: Okay. I wanted. A, I think we know. what I feel that's I should about. have done a
4: haiku now. It's this.
2: well. I, I toyed with a with a pun on this uh, this morning for a headline, something to do with Haley's comet, but of course inappropriate in the circumstances. Um, Stephen,
1: uh, Dad's Army, the Gen Z version. Very good. <laughs> do we go further or Spad's
2: Army? I don't know. <laughs> Jane.
3: So I was told you have to do this, is the first one I've done of this live news meeting, that the shorter the title, the better. So I went for The New Rebel Alliance. But if you wanted to stand first, it could be Battle for the Heart of the Right in a Galaxy Close to Home.
2: Very nice. OK. So who are we going to start with? Jess, why don't you tell us about your story and why you think it matters?
4: So this is the story that most people have probably seen this morning, that Trump won in New Hampshire last night after very emphatically also winning in Iowa last week. And I'm pitching it not because the result is a surprise. We knew that Trump was likely to win in New Hampshire. But I feel that something has shifted this week that's quite important to note. And that is that for a year or so, we have seen poll after poll, pundit after pundit, warn that Trump is going to be the Republican presidential nominee for 2024. And I feel that a lot of people, probably myself included, have been a little bit fingers in their ears saying maybe it won't happen. Maybe Ronda Santos will come through. His star starts to fade. Oh, no, Licky Haley, she's going to maybe be the one that sweeps up the moderates, sweeps up the independents. Maybe she'll manage to make this into sort of at least a two horse race until uh, the criminal charges start to come to trial, until maybe some convictions start looking imminent. And then perhaps support will shift. And I think what has happened this week is that both the scale of his win in Iowa and the fact that no Republican who has won both Iowa and New Hampshire has failed to become the Republican presidential nominee has really hit home that it's happening. That we should, you know, we need to wake up to the reality.
2: So end of the wishful thinking.
4: A little bit. Yeah. I think there was a a poll, an economist poll recently that said that 45 percent of Democrats thought that Trump would be the nominee. And I feel that number needs to get higher now and people need to start kind of, not just in America, but everywhere now, really (coughs) taking notice of of what's going to happen.
2: So the the zero figure is compelling. Zero being the number of, as you say, Republican contenders for the nomination who've won Iowa and Hampshire and haven't got the nomination. But a few hours before the voting, Nikki Haley's campaign manager released a statement which was quite interesting. It said basically... Uh, Whatever happens, we're carrying on, which is par for the course. They've got to do that. But there was some quite interesting stuff there. Uh, It it ended with, as we said in the Sensemaker this morning, do Republicans want to win? In other words, making the case that we're going to stay in it because, by the way, Nikki Haley stands a better chance of beating Joe Biden
4: than Trump does. She beats both of them. Right. There's a a CNN poll that found that Haley was the only 2024 Republican contender who beat Biden by such a margin that it went beyond the margin of error.
2: So on that basis... So she is
4: the most... If this this election was held now, she's the most likely candidate to beat both Biden and Trump. But the reality is that we're in a two-party system where Biden and Trump are kind of locked into (laughs) whatever you want to call this situation where neither one is going to back down which means I think that you know, uh, that Haley's campaign, while she may keep going, while it's not a done deal, while I hesitate to rule out anything at this point in a presidential race, is that it looks, it looks as though it's, it's over.
2: But if you are one of the people who doesn't want Trump to be a candidate, um, there's another reason why you, you might think that more wishful thinking is legit. And that is another point made in this in this statement from the campaign manager, that just as New Hampshire was an open primary, so independents and Democrats, as long as they're not registered Democrats, could vote. So a surprising number, I didn't realize this, of uh, the next states in the pipeline, South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states, also have open or semi-open primaries. So you could get the, the, the moderates, the Indies, and some Democrats piling in to keep the, the Haley's comic going.
4: <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel like I'm ruining your dreams, but <laughs> s- Nikki Haley's trailing 37 points, percentage points behind Trump in South Carolina, which is her home state. So again, I'm really sorry. <laughs> to have, I'm, uh, this is the week, really, that, that for me anyway, something has, has shifted that I, I really do think it's time to, to consider Trump the, the nominee.
2: So the story that you... Or at p- least be honest about that Yeah.
4: as a realistic prospect.
2: The story that you're pitching is not so much the result as a, a kind of meta story, which is uh, end of the wishful thinking, or as Frank Bruni put it in the New York Times this morning, the illusion is shattered.
4: That sounds, yeah.
2: is on. Um, Stephen,
1: what do you think? Is, is is this a big story or was it not enough of a surprise for you to lead the news? Well, I, I mean, I hesitate to even raise the concept of any form of election tampering when it comes to Donald Trump. I, I would say that if I was a unregistered Democrat in New Hampshire, I would join this and I would vote for Donald Trump to be the candidate for the Republican Party. I mean, he he does have a lead in the key six swing states. You know, there's only three six places in America that decide this election, and he does have a lead there, but it's a very small lead. And if the court case goes against him, those states swing against him. So he's banking on the Supreme Court. Um, whereas Nikki Haley, if she becomes leader, she doesn't have any of those problems and she beats Joe Biden. So if I was a Democrat, I'd definitely be trying to manipulate the, um, Republican primaries to make sure that Trump was the candidate. Because I think he, that's who Joe Biden wants to fight. Joe Biden absolutely wants to fight Trump.
2: We should say there are four criminal cases, 91 felony counts. Um, is there a particular one that you see going to the, uh, the Supreme Court? One, the, the federal,
1: federal one. The federal one. Because no one beats the federal government. When, I mean, you got a... It, statistically, your chances of winning if you're up against the federal government are pretty slim. Jane, big story? Just, or oh, just I think, going through um, the most. There's always
3: a danger with Trump, isn't there, as a journalist, that we fed into this. We Every time we give, make him the lead story, we give him and everything he stands for more oxygen, uh, which he often uses against the media by saying if, if we are against him or if we say, hang on a moment, he is actually on trial for all these crimes... January the 6th etc um he then says fake news you know they don't know what they're talking about this is a conspiracy and he feeds and helps that helps his support among the base Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's fascinating in a way I sort of think Nikki Haley is the more fascinating story because you know as Jess has just said she really everything is on her side she should win um She's got this amazing backstory of sort of, you know, her She's uh, her partner was armed forces for a Republican contender. She's got sort of roots in sort of Native American, you know, she's she's sort of this brilliant candidate in many ways. And yet she seems, instead of even talking about those things, she's tried to be sort of mini Trump and has completely failed because no one can out-Trump
4: Trump. And that's just incredible, I think. That was Ron, Ron DeSantis' mistake, as it? it turned out, it was trying to it's, out-Trump Trump.
3: And they've all sort of seemed so much more pathetic. And he is madder than ever. (laughs) You know, it is amazing.
4: But that was what you said just then about the media feeding into like constantly putting Trump on the front page and just feeding the frenzy that he created. I completely agree with that. And that did happen in 2016. Um, What I think this time around, though, is that what I've seen reported is that the sort of Trump bump for news organizations just might not happen this time round because people are just tuning it out completely that's interesting and that i that's why i just think there's While i don't want to make trump um front and center for from now until november i think tuning it out is also a dangerous way to go so sometimes you do have to bring and it's up. an incredible story
2: thank you very much jess uh
1: steve what's your story and why should it lead the news I just want to reference what General Sir Patrick Sander said. He is the uh, chief of staff, the, basically the person in charge of the British Army. He said it's time for Britain to uh, prepare to mobilise because he felt that we were on the brink-ish of war with Russia. He said this sort of thing before. He's talked about us a couple of years ago. We were in our 1937 moment. And he's, he's, he's basically said that we don't have the military capacity to fight Russia. Um, Rishi Sunak said, no, it's fine. We're going to be a volunteer force. And the British Army's always been a volunteer force because when it has a conscript force, there tends to be revolution and all kinds of uh, mayhem because giving British people guns is always a disaster. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think really when when... When you, I spent day talking to a lot of veterans, but a few people who are still active, about why this was said, because the British Army doesn't want to have a concert force. They said, because the British Army is in such a parlous state, the condition of the British military is so woeful, that it's basically a cry to, will someone please talk about the British military and the British Army? What I'm saying is, we don't have the soldiers to fight any kind of realistic war. The people I've been speaking to have mainly been in the Navy, and they've said, well, it's a lot worse than that in the Navy. So we technically have two aircraft carriers, but we don't have any supply or support ships or any escort ships, so we can't actually put any of them to sea, really. I mean, they're both in dock at the moment, one of them in theory preparing for an exercise, but there's no support ship for it. So we have to borrow support ships from the Americans or the French. or, Oh, the irony, the Spanish, because... um, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembers. The, the Spanish end, Armada, just, 15, yes. there. <laughs> 15 years. ago. <laughs> just after Brexit, the Spanish mooted, I think, playfully that they would take um, Gibraltar back. And uh, one of the... Well, peace. Well, we'll send a gunboat down. And actually, the Spanish Navy is far more sophisticated than the British Navy right now. And I think they'd win that one. We, we have um, a T-33 frigate is the last ship we, we, uh, we built, which we built in... Uh, i think 2002 and it's it's to it last 18 years it's falling apart we don't have any frigates anymore the the nuclear submarines uh, can no longer do three-month tours because they're all falling apart It takes seven years to fix a nuclear submarine so they have to do six-month tours and the sailors are coming out barking terrified you know appalled we can't basically function the navy doesn't really work steve i'm going to interrupt you well okay because, <laughs> it, 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 in in a past life, that the the
2: story of Britain's military decline or the shrinking of its forces was a perennial. Uh, often had to write editorials about it. Always, almost always, prompted by pleading what you might call special pleading on the part of the top brass, and completely underst- understandable. You need to uh, defend your patch. And by my rough estimate. Uh, the army is now a tenth of the size that it was in 1950, and the navy is a twentieth of the size that it was in, in 1940. And if you continue that graph, you get to nothing. So wh- why do we need any of them? Why can't we just be a European Costa Rica?
1: Well, this is... I mean, I think there's a very important question about what Britain thinks it is right, right. now. And I think that's really what we're discussing. Uh, Bronwyn Maddox, who um, is the director of Chatham House... Uh, made a speech beautifully uh, timed on, I think, the same day, or if not the day before um, Sir Patrick answer, where she talked about Britain over-promising, Britain's sense of global Britain, this, this power that projects force. And I think that's really, really what we see our military is doing, is sort of playing with the Americans. I mean, sending oh. two typhoons across 1,200 miles to drop a couple of bombs in Yemen. When Why? And I think that's the, the question is, why are we doing these things? And I yeah. think it's to pretend that we're bigger than we are.
3: Jane? I, I'm struck, though. I'm with, with looking at an audience, there's quite a few young people, including my own teenage daughter, um, who's very interested in conscription. And everything we talk about with this, the sort of, you know, that some you know, army captain arguing for conscription and, and spending more on defence because we've not spent anything since 1950 in the post-war. And it's the young, isn't it, who are going to be, basically, it's it's their future. Um, it's what happens to them. And I think the really sort of interesting thing about this, that this new world also that we seem to have slightly mocked up, um, you know, the post-war consensus that we had with Bretton Woods, with NATO, this is all, everything seems under threat at the moment. How do you use the sort of future, and what say do they have? Because this is—I don't think it can be spending, given the dire strait of the economy, as well. I, it, to me, it can't be the sort of first in line for the massive spending. But
2: Jess, you've been looking at this stuff as well. Is it your sense that the the steady decline in scale of British armed forces has actually reached a critical point now, or is it—are we just on a on a glide slope that we could report on in the same way before and in the
4: future? Well, I think this, I think it's a critical point now. It shows how worried senior people in the armed forces are about war with Russia, which again, I don't think people are are maybe being realistic enough about. And if if that happens, if the war expands beyond Ukraine, it also shows how important Ukraine is, by the way, which I think, you know, Ukraine's fallen out the news cycle since Gaza um, in particular has happened, but what, Ukrainian soldiers are doing at the moment matters so much more than we are still realizing, and than we are realizing at the moment. I think. Um, and the other point is, I think I've read that Downing Street didn't want the speech to be published because it raises this very uncomfortable truth that uh, if war with Russia does come, we're not prepared for it, and there's going to have to be a conversation in a, in a country where the NHS is buckling, where social security is buckling, where local councils are buckling. Do we want to give more money to the armed forces? And I don't. that's not the conversation I think they want to be having in the run-up to the general election. They want to be mm. giving away tax cuts and making everyone feel that it's okay. Mm. Um, where actually the more, the more honest thing to do, but it, it probably won't happen in an election year, is to actually start having those, those conversations right. about where, where do we want to be spending our money.
2: Especially in view of the fact that even though we are spending uh, more than 2% of GDP unusually amongst non-US NATO members, it's still not nearly enough to be serious about building up a effective force.
1: Also, we're doing it badly. I mean, we, we've been spending on armoured vehicles for the last 25 years, but in that 25 years, we have not had a single armoured vehicle delivered. So we've spent on them, but they just they don't exist. So that's arguably... OK, so that is a story. That is definitely a story.
4: <laughs> Where are the armoured vehicles?
1: Yeah.
2: Stephen, thank you. Let's take a moment and then we'll hear what Jane thinks should lead the news.
4: so to recap, we're cutting
0: the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Jane, what's yours?
3: Thanks, Diles. Um All this talk about, um, you know, war that's going on and um, tensions overseas, I would like to pitch a story about... What or who is the Conservative Britain Alliance? Um, I've only recently become aware of this grouping because of this astonishing campaign. Um, Well, amazingly, this Conservative Britain Alliance seems to be making a proposal in Britain, which is to get rid of the leader of the Conservative Party or the Prime Minister just ahead of going to the polls. Now, it isn't unusual for Conservatives to get rid of a leader without going to an election, obviously, as we all know, over the last few years. But it does seem the most incredible campaign and I really think it warrants um, a lot more coverage and a lot more understanding because we are talking about... Um, not only the Prime Minister, but a really powerful group of people, not just in Westminster, but also using the media, um, what we used to call Fleet Street. So I was struck today, and for uh, listeners at home, um, I will say what the audience can see, which is that I've got, actually got a paper copy of the Daily Telegraph today. Because, yet at again, the they have... (laughs) they have um put on the top of the front page a story by um sir simon clark who used to be number two to rishi sinak at uh, the treasury is you know says he's quite a nice chap but says he's a complete disaster because he is not doing what and he calls the people that really want core conservative values which if you read his very long piece he's given most a sort of Broadsheet page six, um, A very long piece. Is basically he's not tough enough on immigration. He's allowing people to arrive illegally. Um, this comes after, so the Telegraph is really interesting for lots of reasons as part of this. Um, but this comes after the Telegraph on the middle of it was the middle of uh, it was a Sunday, the fourteenth of January. Um, they ran with this poll. They had a specially commissioned poll. Um, which splashed that um, it was going to be extinction for the Tories. They had, you know, the Conservative Party had to do something about it because of the combination of um, you know, the Red Wall was going to fall, the Blue Wall was, was going to vote for possibly not the Liberal Democrats, but somebody else. It was going to be a complete disaster because, again, because the Conservatives are just not right-wing enough. This was in order to stop that Rwanda uh, bill. It failed to do that but their campaign hasn't stopped and it's got this sort of incredible collection of people. Um, so whether it's sort of Richard Tice and the Reform Party who's obviously with and Nigel Farage who has not declared or, or if anything he will do. Um, you've got people within the party obviously who are very unhappy with Rishi Sunak. Interestingly enough There is no obvious candidate and there's a wonderful line at the end of this story which says the poll and this is where we get the sort of final paragraph of this story. The poll, the YouGov poll that says the Tories will be wiped out um, unless they choose a new leader with core conservative values was commissioned by a group of conservative donors called Conservative Britain Alliance. They did not present respondents with the names of possible alternative Tory leaders. So they don't even have anyone after all these sorts of different people. Nobody is willing. So apparently Kemi Badenoch, um, who does apparently have core conservative values, doesn't want to stand because it's looking all a bit grim at the moment. And the party is going through one of its used to be sort of infrequent and is now pretty regular fights and sort of battles for the heart of Britain. Coming back to The Daily Telegraph, which, as uh, as you know, is is one of the things I've written lots about. The last podcast I did was about the Telegraph, the battle for the Telegraph, because the Barclays owned the Telegraph. Um, they have sort of are still owners, although in, as part of a, a sort of very interesting debt swap, it will be sold to an organisation called Redbird IMI, fronted by an American uh, media executive, but funded by Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mandel... What's so interesting is that there's this incredible news, which is really front and centre of, I mean, the Daily Tory Graph, as it used to be called, the most Conservative Party backing paper, the House Bible of the Conservative Party, um, is now not only splashing massive polls that say, get rid of Rishi Sunak, it's basically running these pieces by his former allies and friends who are now saying, get rid of Rishi Sunak. They mention this... I mean, I'm not being overly journalistic to call it a shadowy organisation. What is Conservative? Does anyone here know Conservative Britain Alliance? So I want to know who are the donors? Interestingly, on Friday, and I know this goes out on Friday, the 26th of January, that's when Ofcom, the media regulator, will decide whether or not the ownership of the Telegraph, uh, this bid by um, Abu Dhabi, which lots and lots of Conservative voices, not just these sort of um, overtly political ones, but people like Charles Moore, a big friend of Boris Johnson and former uh, editor of Daily Sunday Telegraph and The Spectator, very opposed to nation-state control by Abu Dhabi, but also, you know, Michael Heseltine... William Wardrove On the other side, on the side that says you should buy them, is Nadim Zahawi, George Osborne acting for, for Redbird. I just think this is like a battle. And it's not whether you're a sort of Conservative Party member or voter or not. This is incredible. This is a government where the party seems in this incredible, like it is this sort of rebel alliance. It seems like some sort of, you know fight for the soul of what it really is and whether it is right wing enough and that's going to change our politics and the the politics of this country um even more you know 2016 obviously it's been changing quite a lot and Um, even
2: if they're in the political wilderness for the next patch yeah so it's it's certainly a a great question uh who and what is is the alliance can we park that for a second and um uh, Park Sir Simon Clark, the author of this piece, his views on immigration. I read his piece, very nicely written, good, slick read. Isn't at the core of it a completely unassailable argument? He's absolutely dead right that they're sleepwalking to electoral disaster under this leader, so they might as well change the leader.
3: I, it's really interesting, though, that they're using this YouGov poll that. Is not. I mean, the Gov itself has had to come forward and say that the way they've been reading it is not quite as um, catastrophic. All the okay, polls suggest, you're UGov. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. All the polls suggest, though, that um, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, are going to win. Um, it doesn't seem like it's quite as. I mean, the, these do seem, you don't get anywhere that it's quite as sort of stark, and if you do this, this will happen, if you do that, it won't. Um, and it, it, it you're right, if you to put money on it, you wouldn't put money on the Conservative Party within, which is why they're slightly struggling to find a new leader. Um, (laughs) But but what that means in terms of the Reform Party, I mean that's, you know, Richard Tice um, and people that back the Reform Party, does that mean that actually the politics, if there is a, a Labour government? Uh, you know that he again his piece, which was really interesting, which says you know we could have the horror of a Labour government for the next ten years, um, but actually isn't it more a call to arms to have those who believe the Conservative Party has lost its way because it's just become a bit too not really clear on you know red and teeth and claw Conservative issues. As a new far-right party, the sort of, I mean, with the sort of Trump-like figure, with all the... It's the populist. And they even... Um, I was I heard something um, earlier today about how Rishi Sunak has some incredibly populist policies, but he's not a very convincing populist. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't really... Because of the way he is and his sort of, you know, his background, they think, only oh, he doesn't really believe it. Whereas um, similar background in some ways, in terms of private schooling and work, to... Nigel Farage, but people believe Nigel Farage because he drinks beer in the pub.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, so Jane, I see uh, three strands to this, and I'll I'll accept that they're they're intimately in, interwoven. The battle for the soul of the Tory party looking forward, battle for the soul of the Daily Telegraph as the voice of looking forward, but also an immediate battle for control of uh, Downing Street right now because that's what uh, Simon Clark is is arguing for in his piece. Um, uh, Jess, as news editor, uh, which of those components is grabbiest to you? If any. (laughs) Or you can just trash the whole story.
4: No, I don't want to trash the whole story because I think at the moment, the most immediate one that I'd commission is the one looking at the Telegraph, given that the Ofcom deadline is tomorrow. Yes, it's on Friday. uh, Although we might not know what that is straight away. And then... Why? Why they are? Why they seem to be taking this battle to the Conservative Party when they need the Conservative Party on side to maybe fend off a Red Bird takeover? I think is a really important one to unpick. I'm not. I think we need to find a little bit more about the alliance and actually find a character to bring that all to life to kind of help you navigate through all of those threads.
2: Steve, do you like this story?
1: I. I mean, I think. What do you think the story is? I think the story ultimately these stories actually the, the story about Trump and this boil down to the same basic question about politics, which is can you win on your base or not? And I think this is where the this is what's happening at the Conservative Party is trying to work out how to appeal to a particular base. And it's not sure what its base is at the moment. It so it, it won the election by appealing to a sort of pro-Brexit idea which it thought was its new base and I think there's an argument to say that's that was mistaken strategy because I think there are a lot of people particularly in going back to my story the army um in uh, red wall cities who were repelled by Jeremy Corbyn I think there was a lot of people who were rejected into that vote as much as were attracted into that vote um and I think that there's, there's there's an issue to some degree with actually the Conservative Party losing its blue wall because there's a lot of people who are repelled by the by the kind of by the style of conservatism. I also think there's a link between that particular group of conservatives, the, the conferences they hold, and the American right. There's the, the far more collusion, conversation and collaboration between these factions in America and the UK on the right than there are on the left. So I think these things wrap together to the degree that I think it's almost impossible to run as a single story. I think what it is, it sets you up with a series of questions in an election year which demand us to investigate and understand what's going on because I think, I think that is... A, a, I hate this phrase. It is a canary in a coal mine. That cry. It's so clearly preposterous a suggestion. I mean, it's so obviously insane. So much so that David Davis said, the cabal on the right are getting silly. David Davis <laughs> said, the cabal on the right are getting silly. And Pretty Patel described it as a facile and divisive self-indulgence. So that's, it's obviously insane, but it must, so therefore it can't exist in and of itself. It must it must be a symptom of something. Thank you all very much. Those are the stories. There
2: are, of course, many others out there in the world, but those are the ones that we are um, discussing in a moment. I will decide which should lead the news. But before I do that, I want to know from you guys which you would choose, and you can't choose your own. So who's going to go first? Jane, you cannot choose the Sir Simon Clark story.
3: I actually like both the other stories,
2: Richard. You do have to choose one.
3: OK. Well, I suppose I would go because the need to, like, just because it's happened is the New Hampshire vote. Um, because, uh, as Jess said, we have been saying, oh, Trump, 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 but because of what we see in the courts, because you can't believe that anyone with that many criminal cases could possibly come back to stand for the election and win, uh, it seems to me a real moment, and it's a sort of astonishing moment that even though I preface this by talking about the oxygen to Trump you have to talk about why it's happening and that it has happened.
1: Steve? I, I'm fascinated by the threads that go into Jane's. I think it's a, it's a really complicated story and I think it's difficult to say it should run in and of itself at the top of the hour or whatever mm-hmm. because I think it requires unpicking. I don't quite know what the headline of it is, but I think it's the one that I'm most fascinated by finding out where it goes. Okay, Jess?
4: I'm gonna go for the armed forces. So we each get one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what good collaborative newsrooms are like.
2: <laughs> well, you're, you're no help at all. Okay, so, uh, I mean, collectively, you left me to decide. Um, so I've been having a bit of a grump internally recently about he said stories, or she said stories, or they said stories, uh, which feel to me less substantive than someone did something stories. And currently, when we've got two real hot wars happening, someone-said-something stories always seem less important, less deserving of the top slot than who's still alive, who's attacking who stories, grim as they are to report. And in a sense, um, so Simon Clark saying let's ditch uh, Sunak is a he-said story, in a sense... Uh, The top brass saying we're running out of armed forces is a familiar, they said, story. So my instinct at first is to look, as you did, at New Hampshire and ask myself, so what's the surprise? And the trouble is, there's no real surprise in the result. I do take your argument that it's a reality check for those who have been clinging on to reasons to believe that Trump might not be the candidate. You, you, you heard it here, he, he's gonna be the candidate. Um, uh, but for me, that's not enough to put at the top. So I come back to the two someone said uh, stories and of those, I'm going to side with Sir Simon Clark who is the Conservative Britain Alliance, who's gonna win the battle for the soul of the Tory party and of the Telegraph, Uh, because it's already written into British political history. Uh, It will have an immediate sequel on on Friday if that's when we know who the, uh, an immediate follow-up if that's when we know who the uh, owner of the Telegraph is going to be, but simply by virtue of inserting himself in such forthright language into the discussion, uh, I think he grabbed himself the top spot this time. Uh, So Simon Clark did, and so did you, Jane Martinson. Many (laughs) congratulations. It just shows the power of words. Right, so that's how I run the stories. Remember, you can email us about the stories you think we've missed. Heaven knows there are plenty of them. Just send your thoughts to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And at this point, I can read an email that came to us from Finn after Monday's episode. And Finn said, Just a quick one to express my unspeakable relief that you went for the MMR story today to lead the news. If we've learned anything from the COVID era, it is that epidemiological matters need to be understood better. And in order for that, they need to be reported better by journals such as yourselves. I didn't actually know about this story, he says, before listening to you. And all the points raised were solid, salient, and most importantly, cogent. This affects me personally, as my school-aged children are still unvaccinated, and I am in a pre-legal process against their mother, very much Wakefield-inspired, that's Andrew Wakefield, the propagator of the myth that there is a link between MMR and uh, autism, to try to change that. So... Stephen, Jess and Jane, thank you. If you want to hear more from Jane, you can listen to Mr. Wright, Paul Marshall and the Battle for the Telegraph by searching for the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcast. You can also read her new book, which I will repeat is called You May Never See Us Again, which is the definitive story of the Telegraph owners David and Frederick Barclay. That's it for this episode of the News Meeting. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, goodbye.
3: Tortoise.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.